Welcome to the apocalypse, everybody. This is another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. Uh, coming to you from two separate houses because we're not allowed to be anywhere near each other in this day and age. Uh, with me, as always, digitally, is Daniel Terry. How are you doing this evening? Well, you know, I'm alive. I think I'm okay. I'm not showing any symptoms, but apparently that's going to take two weeks. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll... I don't know. You look a little pixelated. I mean, you know, pixelation is a, is a very, very uh, strong indicator of coronavirus and uh okay. i'm not trying to make light of that situation at all it's actually like really terrible and i can't believe people are not taking it seriously uh probably by the time this comes out we'll probably have done about a three or a four part uh series uh about that um full transparency uh with this basically shutting down the music industry as a whole um I've been talking to a lot of my friends. Uh, we have a couple of interviews coming up with uh, Justin Foley of Kill Switch Engage and JB of August Burns Red. Uh, I was one of the only two dates that that Kill Switch August Burns Red tour got to play. And as a result uh, of JB and I talking initially about the coronavirus and, and not really knowing the severity of what it would do and the impact it'd have on the music industry, um, we're going to be doing another chat here pretty soon in the next couple of days as of when we're recording this, uh, which is St. Patty's Day, which man i can't think of another industry that just took a big hit other than the <laughs> the bar and service industry on this night at least but um yeah um this episode's guest uh having nothing to do with coronaviruses or anything that we've just recently been talking about is uh ben jorgensen singer and guitarist of armor for sleep um yeah this was fun dan was actually on it yeah yeah it was a lot of fun it's a very rare dan and john uh interview and those are always a lot of fun at least they are to me. Uh, and I think that uh, we got a lot of the uh, inside information on our armor for sleep. And uh, and now I'm bummed out because that tour is not coming anywhere near me. I, I think the closest it's coming is Chicago. And, of course, that's all tentative because of the, uh, you know, apocalyptic virus that's taking over the world right now. So, uh, you know, could could not happen, could happen. I, I don't know. Um, I'll try to make it for sure, uh, especially after having that chat. Um, th- this was a lot of fun for us. And, you know, again, having both of us there together was, was a, a, a huge, a huge plus, I think. I, I'd love for us to be able to do more chats together. And um, no, Hey, th- you might get your wish with this coronavirus. <laughs> we got nothing but time, man. We got nothing but time. I mean, as of right now, I think John and I are still both going to work every day. Um, yep. You know, I uh, I actually fix uh, oxygen concentrators at my job, and uh, so that's something that is in high demand right now because of the uh, respiratory nature of the virus. So uh, I'll probably be going to going to work every day for the for the time being. Yeah, and unfortunately or fortunately, I guess I like making money, so. Um you know, I work basically shipping stuff through FedEx and UPS, so until those are not functional uh, avenues to ship out things, uh, I still have to go to work as well. You never know, man. I might send you that corn record back. I just might. <laughs> do, do, do you want to see it? I have it here. Yeah. <laughs> I trust that you're keeping it well. It's 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 a really high up on a shelf, so none of the uh, none of the kids can get it. I don't think any of the kids should be anywhere near a corn record in the first place, especially that first one. I mean, you know, they're my kids, and you know, discussing all Dan's kids. I mean, they've heard corn. I I guess they're probably listening to like gore guts and shit like that too. Gore guts, Cannibal Corpse, a little bit of DSI here and there. You know, it's it's all good for the education. Absolutely. I mean, everyone's got to be homeschooled now anyway. So yeah, I mean, you know, they're like, what does hypocrisy mean? What, what is you know what what is what, what exactly what role does Satan play in my daily life? You know, 
These are, <laughs> these are all valid questions. Uh, I wanted to do something a little bit different, just because I, I don't know necessarily that everyone sticks around to the very end, because I see the uh, YouTube comments and so forth, where people were like, hey, fast forward to this point uh, to listen to the conversation. So I want to give a plug to our sponsors right up here in the front. Uh, Rockabilia.com. They've come on recently, like I said, a couple episodes ago. Uh, really stoked to have them on. Head on over to Rockabilia.com. Check out their stuff. They're 100% real, officially licensed material, not that knockoff shit that you sometimes see on uh, eBay and a bunch of other places, uh, maybe from a, a local peddler outside of a rock venue during a show. Um, great stuff. Actually, uh, in looking up right before we did this, they have Armor for Sleep merch. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know many places that would have Armor for Sleep as a, an available merch option, but they have hoodies, they have shirts, they have patches. Um, you're going to find over 500,000 items on their website. Uh, if you're a first-time user, you get 10% off of your purchase. So head on over to rockabilia.com, get you some awesome swag, support them for supporting us. Uh, Podcorn. You know, we've been having them on the last couple episodes as well. It's a great avenue for basically podcasters or content creators to find advertisers for their shows. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want to try to make money doing this and help offset some of their costs? So thank you to Podcorn. Bean Bastard. I mean, if you're stuck at your house, you're probably going to go through a shitload of coffee. So go to TheBeanBastard.com, get some coffee. And On Point Palmade. I mean, I, you know... You still got to look presentable, so keep your beard and your hair looking good. Use the code BSP15. Get 15% off your total order. Let them know that we're sending you. Support all these sponsors for supporting us. And I uh, just want to get those out of the way in case you actually don't listen to them at the end of the thing. We're still going to do them back there, too. But, uh, yeah. So, as a whole, this conversation is actually pretty fucking long. It's about an hour and a half. So, let's get right into our conversation with Ben from Armor for Sleep. And we'll talk to you on the other side of this. <laughs> Well, we have the pleasure of spending our evening with Ben Jorgensen, Jorgensen, however, uh, depending on where <laughs> you're one. from and which dialect you use, uh, singer and guitar player for Armor for Sleep. Welcome back, I guess. Uh, you've been gone Thanks. for a little while, and uh, other than That's the true. Lead Singer Syndrome podcast, uh, guys made <laughs> mm-hmm. a bit of a splash uh, announcing this uh, 15th anniversary tour of uh, What to Do When You're Dead, mm-hmm. um, and I think surprised a lot of people, because... I don't know if uh, if you're answering what you do when you're dead is basically you come back and show everyone like, hey, remember this awesome record we did and want to get down on some good rock and roll. So uh, I guess, you know, you know, I want to talk about this record because uh, I'll full transparency. Armor for Sleep wasn't really a band uh, that I got into when you guys were first out. Um, Dan and myself and a few couple of different podcast episodes we've done we'd actually talked about how you know there's that sweet spot when you're like 19 to like 24 and you're broke and you can't afford things and this is a day mm. and age where like smartphones weren't as prevalent as they are uh computers weren't as cheap as they are and internet cost a whole shitload of money uh so there was a, a nice like four-year gap where like i couldn't afford to go to shows or buy cds and things like mm-hmm. that and there's a, a whole scene basically that kind of went by me and i feel like you guys were kind of sadly one of those bands um not for lack of hearing 
honoring your name, just lack of the funds to be able to support you in any way, shape, or form. And it wasn't until I started dating my wife that she actually got me into this record. And it's really weird to find a record almost 10 years after it had been out and being like, oh my God, where was this the whole time? (laughs) That's cool, man. Thank you. Yeah. um, So, I mean, something that, you know, in doing a lot of my due diligence about this record, something that I always kind of thought was interesting, you know, Machine is one of my favorite producers uh, of this kind of era. And something that, Mm -hmm. you know, in the last couple of years uh, that I've heard many stories of Machine, you know, from watching DVDs or talking to some bands that have worked with him, uh, he's he's kind of a very hands-on producer. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard that working to some bands... uh, you know, bringing the best out of him. Like I'm thinking of uh, Dan and I were actually talking earlier about, you know, when he did the uh, Sacrament record with Lamb of God and all those guys talked about how, you know, he was pushing everybody to kind of create the best that they could. Yes. But then, you know, I've heard stories of a band like Every Time I Die who did Gutter Phenomenon with him and they were like, ah, we just, you know, didn't feel like it was the right person, felt like he was kind of trying to push things on us that weren't really what we wanted. And mm. For this being such a, a very interesting record in concept, sounds, and all that kind of stuff, kind of wanted to know how, you know, starting with the producer, who is a big part of how a record can be, what did you find working with Machine was like, and what did he add to this uh, this record that maybe no one really would think that he's added to the record that they love? Yeah, um, well, Machine was a, an integral part of this record, for sure, and um, he, he added a lot to it. I can go into um, specifics about it. I just, I think at that point it was a great partnership because um, we had this concept for an album and I had this idea to kind of make it like a story that I'd been talking about, uh, that I'd been talking to a couple producers about actually. And um, we met Machine and I told him about this and he immediately was like super into the idea and just wanted to help us facilitate that idea um, as opposed to like somebody taking it and be like, oh, I want to kind of make it my own thing. He was just on board for the vision of it. And he really had the tools to, you know, help us execute it. Um, and yeah, and, you know, just technically as a producer coming from the world that he came from, he definitely, I feel like even though he did, let, well, Lamb of God was not our scene at all. But um, <laughs> even <laughs> but even outside of Lamb of God, he, he I feel like Lamb of God was in a way one of the most, um, I guess he had worked with like hard rock bands, but not like as cool as Lamb of God. But it wasn't like he was in the scene working with like a lot of bands that came from either the metal or like hardcore world. And so like, I was like, is he even going to like get us? But like the different influences that he had working with like weird, like British, like trip hop things. Like he was really into like DJ, um, was DJ Shadow and just this weird mm-hmm. stuff. Like he was able to add all these weird flavors that I don't think any of the producers that we knew, like from the scene, would have been able to add in. So I think it was. I think it was really interesting, and I think that for that specific um, like vision, we were like a really good team for. Well, and I think that's perfect too because you know if you think about it, you know if if you have a producer that is firmly rooted in hard rock or whatever, they're going to try to make your record into just a standard rock record, which obviously isn't what you guys were going for at all. Um, yeah. You know, you, you were you were going for something that was a little bit more um I don't know this might be a pretentious word, but like more ethereal mm. sounding, you know, like a little yeah. bit more um a for little sure. bit more dreamy, a little bit more hazy. You know, mm-hmm. so you, you'd say that he was able to assist in that maybe in a way that other producers wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. Like uh, if I tried to talk to him about like 
I don't know, uh, a Lifetime song, he'd be like, who is Lifetime? But then right. if, if we were like, oh, this is going to sound like Pink Floyd, he'd be like, I know Pink Floyd. So we had all these, you know, we had these different things, like, it's basically like a Venn diagram, you know, like our circles didn't meet uh, in a lot of areas where like, I think in terms of like, you know, I mean, we all came from like the hardcore punk scene and and then eventually to like post hardcore and like bands like At The Drive-In, it did like more melodic, weird stuff. Like he wasn't, he didn't come from that world, but like where we did meet in the middle of the Venn diagram, I think were a lot of the sounds that, that wound up making it onto this record, you know? So, um, that was cool and interesting. And, uh, I think different than if we had just gone with whatever dude was making all the fearless records albums, you know? Right. Well, something actually kind of speaking to that, that's interesting is, you know, kind of thinking back to when you were making this record, I mean, you, you kind of, you know, touched on like at the drive in, you know, the, the shift in music was so weird at this point. I mean, you're having, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it just makes me feel really fucking old sometimes when doing some of these conversations and remembering where I was and what was coming out and thinking about how interesting it was as far as, you know, like you were saying, Lamb of God did a record with Machine and it at the time sounded completely different than anything they had done. But then you mm-hmm. look at some of the stuff like John Feldman was doing with bands like Atreyu and, you know, AFI went from being a punk band to now being this multi-genre-y kind of band. And mm-hmm. everyone, the music scene as a whole was kind of all over the place and it was kind of fun and exciting because yes. you didn't know who was going to do what going into this record following a, a rather successful you know first record major label record was there pressure to sound like any of your contemporaries at that point going into this going into what to do when you were dead yeah well so our situation was we had put out one album on equal vision before that which was like um uh, the people who were newly aware of our band liked, but it was it was also weird for us because we came up when we started playing our first shows. We played with a small band from Long Island called Taking Back Sunday. Like we became friends <laughs> with them right when they signed to Victory. And who were they? We, yeah, exactly. And we were friends with, um, you know, we were friends with a band from Chicago called Fallout Boy. Who, when we started playing shows with them, were very small. And so when we came out with our first album, they were like, oh, man, you guys are going to be huge. And it, it, we did it. You know what I mean? Like we, we developed some fans, but like we, we did not. We by no means got big off the bat. And on the same token, Taking Back Sunday and Fall Out Boy became massively big. So by the time we went to do um, What to Do When You Were Dead, I almost and I think we collectively had the feeling like no one really gives a fuck about us. And like, <laughs> we were watching our friends bands get huge, but we almost like, also we had just signed with new uh, managers who were actually managing Fall Boy at the time. And I feel like they started managing us kind of out of like pity. Like they weren't even really <laughs> paying attention to what we were doing. So I think that was almost a blessing in disguise for us because we didn't have a huge fan base at that point. And like, no one was really like I don't like our management the record label didn't even know that we were doing like a concept album they were just like yeah we'll put out your your second record so in a way and I actually learned this lesson you know it probably took me years to learn this lesson but like that feeling of like not having anyone's eyes on us at the time is probably why we were able to do some of the cool stuff and for me personally as like a songwriter it's probably why I didn't feel um, pressure and where I was just able to do what I thought was cool because there was zero, you know, thought in my head that this could, that this was going to be scrutinized by anyone. Um, yeah. Right. Cause at that point it's easy to just go the pop punk route or to go 
you know, like whatever, you know, whatever Taking Back Sunday was doing that year, you know, like it's so easy yeah. to take that route. And if you had tons of eyes on you, yeah, you, you're not going to make the creative decisions that you that you made. 100 percent. And also as a 20 year old kid, when you have those eyes on you and you look up to your managers, you look up to your record label, you're, you're you know, mentally not able to you know, stick to your guns as much just being that age and being as vulnerable as all of us idiots are in bands, you know? Sure. Well, actually, something to that, you know, and something that we kind of harp on quite a bit on this podcast. Actually, I should come up with a different adjective because harp sounds really bad. Um, but basically, you know, we in this time period of us, you know, all of us, or at least, you know, myself and Dan are in our mid thirties. So, I mean, thinking about when bands basically were getting signed, you just talked about going into this record, you're 20. And like, Mm -hmm. I just was telling you, by the time you were putting out this record, I'm living on my own and can barely make ends meet because that's Mm. the decision I made. But it's interesting to think about all these bands who got signed very young, either in high school or just coming out. And the thing that you were doing as a hobby, something for fun to do with your friends, now becomes looked at as a product. It has to sell copies, and it, it's making someone a living other than yourselves, or in addition to yourselves. Right. And thinking about how that affects your your music, because um, you know, I'm sure the expectation, you know, the the adage always is, you have a lifetime to make the first record, and what a year to make the second one if you're mm-hmm. lucky. And so, going into it at 20 years old. What was your mindset going into this? Because, I mean, I've read the the interviews you've done in the past where you said, like, you know, you had two songs that you started writing with this this yeah. idea in mind, this perspective on how you were going to write, and you started second-guessing yourself. Mm-hmm. What's Kind of walk me through that a little bit, because I, I think that's interesting that at 20 years old, you know, you're starting to come up with what will become a concept record, and that's not really something a whole lot of 20-year-olds really are, are brainstorming and, and trying to work their way through. Um. Yeah, uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, like I said before, I I remember the first couple songs kind of were written from that perspective, but I just, I didn't think I wanted to do the whole thing. And I I just think it popped into my, I mean, literally like my life as a writing songs is like what I think will be cool. And so that was just one of those moments of what I think would be cool, you know? And I just, I, you know, I wrote it down and I just kept like putting the pieces together and thinking, you know, about like what that would take. And then the rest of the guys in the band were on board. And and just like, you know, you asked like what I was going through at the time. You're right. It's it was it's it was really weird to be 20 years old. And um, I started the band when I was 17, when I was 17. And uh, I was a freshman in college when uh, September 11th happened. Um, which kind of like shook me and I'd been uh, playing in bands already at that point. But I was like, you know, I guess I had a moment like a lot of people where I was like, uh, I just, you know, like fuck school. I want to just do, you know, songs and, and see where the band will take me. But fast forward a couple years later, like the reality of that started to set in of like, what the fuck am I doing? And, um, you know, we had gone on our first few tours and, you know, we put out our first album, which again, like being friends with bands, like taking back Sunday, who were like, you guys are going to be the biggest band overnight. And then watching them explode and us, us still standing there, like holding their towels when they got off stage, it was just, you know, uh, a strange feeling. So I think all of that compounded into this idea that I had to, you know, write songs from the perspective of, uh, someone who was dead, because I think, just I don't know I, I can't say like I felt dead but I just I definitely felt weird doing what I was doing and 
just, you know, in life, it, it's a weird path to pursue, but also specifically what was going on with our band at that time. And, and, um, yeah, it was just a lot. And, and, um, and yeah, and it's, it's kind of crazy. Like I, I look at a 20 year old kid now and they, they seem like a baby, you know what I mean? And it, it's right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm stoked that, uh, that we were able to do it and I'm, I'm stoked that machine, you know, was on board and, and helped us and helped me do it. Um, yeah. As far as musical influence goes, and I hate asking influence questions because it's like a really lame question to ask somebody. So, sure. But uh, on this record, I'm de- one thing that I think is really interesting is you know you talked about you know taking back Sunday and Fall Out mm. Boy and stuff like that. But what when, when I'm listening to Armor for Sleep, what I'm hearing more is hints of like old school, like like some of the some of the old hardcore bands that I grew up on, like mm-hmm. like uh, Hope's Fall or Shy Haloo or bands like that. Um, totally. Was, was, that, was that definitely where you guys were coming from on that? Yeah, I mean, so personally, like from just like the music that I always liked. Um, so I grew up, well, I grew up super into punk rock and then I got into like hardcore and I was one of those kids who like ordered everything from the Revelation Records catalog. So of Even course, like all the yeah. weird records, like Shy Halud and like Buy a Thread, anything that sounded like Sunny Day Real Estate, anything that sounded like, you know, Converge to, I was super into that. And um, when I was in high school, there was like, the, I feel like there were two two kinds of bands coming out. There were like like the newfound glories of the world who were taking, I guess, the pop punk and like combining it almost with post-hardcore, but it was super poppy. And then there were bands that were more like Jimmy Eat World that were kind of coming from maybe like the sunny day real estate side of whatever the emo thing was. And it was still melodic, but it was a lot more like minor chordy and a lot more, you know, dissident than just like the super happy all the time, newfound glory sound. Right. And so my friends kind of split down the middle. Like I have a lot of friends who like just loved the newfound glory poppy stuff that was coming up, but I was just always drawn to, I guess, darker chord progressions and i think someone one of my managers pointed out like you've never written a song in a major key and i was like that might be true but that's just naturally what sounds better to me like you know growing up uh nine inch nails was one of my favorite bands of all time and thinking back now it's probably because all of those songs are are in a minor key um so yeah that's just those are just always the bands that resonated with me coming out of the scene um and and yeah and then obviously being from New Jersey, Lifetime and and then Saves of the Day were massively important because they took a lot of like the harder uh, sound from like hardcore that all my friends were listening to at the time. But like, for instance, uh, in Saves the Day, like Chris was singing about, you know, breaking up with his girlfriend, but over like super fast, like hardcore songs. And I was like, right. wait, this is so much better than singing about you know, whatever, staying, keeping the scene strong. Um. <laughs> well, and that was interesting too, in that, you know, it, having a more dissonant approach, I always kind of took that as like, oh, well, because we're also writing songs from the perspective of, you know, so somebody that's dead, you know, I always wondered if that was like an influence thing or if that was an intentional creative choice and that like, you know, if you're, if you're coming from the perspective of somebody that's dead, you know, you can emulate <laughs> beauty, but you have to do it through non-traditional means. Yeah, no, it, it. I mean, that makes sense, but um, I don't. I don't even think it's. Uh, it was that conscious. That's just like, you know. I guess. I guess that's how it comes out. Uh, I read too much yeah. into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know something when looking at this record lyrically and from the songwriting perspective, um, 
obviously it's a, it's a concept record, mm-hmm. but something I always love figuring out or learning more about is how hard was it to figure out the track listing for this record? Were there different iterations where the songs weren't necessarily in the order that they were are now? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, we played around with that a bunch. Um, like I think I have a little notebook where I played around with the different track order, but we also knew that the track order would be really important. Um, cause we wanted to kind of have some songs that like bled into each other. And I also just wanted to know like lyrically, um, what the order was going to be. Cause I definitely wanted there be, to be some kind of story. Um, and machine was actually a big proponent of that too, from the beginning. So, um, when we did pre-production for this album, we actually did, we recorded the entire album like in sequence from front to back as basically one long demo. So we could all kind of like resonate on it. Um, and that's the exact order that it is now. So for this one, we went into the studio to track it like in order. Basically, we didn't do it. We didn't actually track it like chronologically, but like we knew what the sequence was going to be. And that didn't change from, you know, I think three months before we recorded it until it was done. Um, so, yeah. Out of curiosity, and I don't I don't think I've if there is, I don't think I've ever found it. But mm. were there any extra songs that just didn't make this record? Because it seems like I mean, it wraps itself up pretty well. It's self-contained very well. Yeah. But you know, you always hear people talking about like, oh, you know, we, we went in with, you know, 22 songs, narrowed it down to the best 15. Were there yeah. extra songs that were written for this record that just never made it past the demo stage? Um, so yes and no. So there, uh, so basically no, I guess. So, I mean, there is one uh, <laughs> hidden track on the actual CD um, that comes before the first track that plays. Yeah, you have to like, do that thing regret. where you skip before. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know how it got that name because it, like there's actually never been a name given to it. But like when I, when I look online, so someone, someone thought of that name and I guess it's there. Um, and then, yeah, the B side uh, is a song called Very Invisible that I guess originally we were playing around with maybe sneaking into the track listing. But I think early on we realized it was kind of redundant because it was kind of, it was going to fit towards the end of the record. So we wound up just releasing it as a B side. But aside from that, there were honestly no other songs written for this record, which is very weird because for the next album we did, which was our last album, I think it had uh, like 12 or 13 tracks on it. And we probably wrote like 60 songs for that one. So, you know, sometimes more is not better. (laughs) Right. Well, it sounds like you had a much more complete thought, you know, with with this one, you know, and uh that's got to be scary too, though, because like, I mean, was there ever any fear that like the label is going to come back and be like, you know, this one needs to go, this one needs to go, or or was it even like that at all? So thankfully, um, Equal Vision, uh, who was our label for the first two records and and uh, What to Do When You're Dead was the second one, they were super cool and honestly, they were super supportive of us and they believed in us and in our vision and the artwork. You know, we. We hired who we wanted to do the art. Like I found a really cool um, company that I liked who did stuff. And, and I was like, this is how the art needs to be. And, and Equal Vision was like, cool. Yeah, what's the name? Awesome. Cool. Concept album? Great. And like they were 100% supportive. And um, I think that was great because we didn't have to deal with that. And that would have sucked. You know, if they'd come back and been like, cool, these 11 songs are cool, but can you can you write three more? Like that would have sucked. And I think then we would have started second guessing ourselves. Um so I'm very thankful to those guys for having given us the leeway to do what we did, because I think sometimes 
labels fuck it up and managers fuck it up when they want to be too involved. And, you know, the bigger something gets too, the more people feel like they want to justify whatever their paycheck or what they do. So the more they feel like they have to chime in, even if the opinion isn't necessarily going to help the thing, you know? Sure. I don't know how big of a Hope's Fall fan you are, but considering kind of, uh, I don't want to say that the band sounds similar, but seem to come mm-hmm. from a, the same place, you know, for um, sure. Musically. Oh yeah. No, Hope's Fall were awesome. I think the only shows we played with them were when we were both kind of on some weird stage on Warp Tour, if I'm not mistaken, in yeah. like 2005, maybe. Yeah. I mean, those dudes, I always was just like, this is a very cool band and I had nothing but respect for them. Yeah. Out of curiosity, you know, with with pushing this record, you know, obviously Car Underwater was I don't know if quote unquote promotional singles were a thing at this point, like they are now where you get, you know, the first song well before the record comes out and then the official first single is whatever it happens to be, which in this case would have been Car Truth About Heaven, if we're using that example. How hard was it to pick a single off of a record that isn't necessarily a singles based kind of a record? Um yeah, I mean I guess it was pretty tough, but I think um I think the label really liked Car Underwater from the beginning. Um, so I think that was an easy one to pick out. I think the truth about Evan was a little bit harder but um but yeah i mean honestly i i think you know those like i don't think those songs were ever on the radio but i remember mtv2 was a thing and equal vision definitely pushed us to mtv2 which was interesting for them because they i feel like they got a little bit of mtv play with saves the day but like this was the first time that they were actually like pushing one of their bands uh at mtv and it actually got um a bunch of plays um But I remember even then thinking, like, do people who listen to this know that this is part of, like, you know, a full story in an album? Right. Um, And I guess I never, like, you know, I could never do a survey with the people who watch the video on MTV. Like, what do you think? Is this song part of a large story? You know, I guess it was just always a question mark in my head. Like, how is it received or does it stand alone as its own thing? So I don't know. Well, kind of adversely with the tours you were doing, Mm because I was trying to look up the tours to see if you were doing more support tours or doing more headliners or if it was about even. But just for the sake of argument of the question I have, which is if you're doing support tours and you're trying to promote this record, how do you how did you pick which songs to play off of this? Because, again, you're kind of pushing a record which has got a, a narrative behind it so do you try to play more of this and give more of the story or just kind of pick songs that sound cool and would go over better in a live setting yeah we just tried to play songs uh to have the people jump around the most because we were always we were always <laughs> supporting other bands right and um we we were just we we i think we learned early on that we had to fight at every show to get fans because we were just we were just a different kind of band i think and because i played guitar and sang and wasn't you know like gerard from my chem who's this like you know super charismatic frontman. like i was stuck behind my guitar like we really had to learn to work it if we had any hopes of having anybody you know of winning anyone over so the song selection for us if we tried to do what you're saying and like explain like we're gonna play a selection of a story like they would just be crickets so we just had to be like what is going to start a mosh pit when we open for all american rejects (laughs) or like you know that's that's literally what we had to do and um and so yeah that's how we chose it so live it was it was basically like survival and hope they like it and hope they get the album and are like wait a minute what why what is this (laughs) 
Yeah. I think it's just interesting to kind of think back to this because, I mean, you know, like we were saying a little bit ago, you know, Mike Hamm was getting ready to put out uh, Black Parade. And, you know, we had records at this point that were coming out that were concept records that weren't, you know, alienating people. Like people were getting, I mean, shit, all of the Coheed yeah. records and so forth. And yes. I mean, it's like even to a lesser degree, New Jersey based band as well. But like we're all the time with Thursday, you know, uh-huh. like there were these whether they're loose or very tightly constructed concepts, totally bands doing it and bands were kind of like, you know, I saw, saw Mike, I'm on that basically that black parade tour and they 100% went out dressed in the garb. Kind of, that was the narrative. They just kind of focused on that record, telling that story and finding (laughs) ways to put in a song like the ghost of you and finding songs from their past that kind of worked within that narrative as well. So I kind of didn't know if you guys were trying to do something similar now, adversely (laughs) though, with you playing guitar and singing was there ever a thought to kind of maybe do something like you were seeing you know green day and, and some of these other bands doing where you have an ancillary guitar player probably couldn't afford to do such honestly now that i say mm-hmm. that but uh of coming yeah. out and being more of a traditional frontman. yeah so uh, a couple points on that one uh there's a a reason and a well-deserved one why my chem basically became the biggest band in the world or you know what i mean or like close to it and that's because yeah, they they fucking like lived it and um everything about them it just it it worked so perfectly with, you know, the whole um obviously like the makeup and and the, the costumes and it, it was just it was it was just really really super well done and and those guys are amazingly talented and obviously Gerard's a great singer everything is you know very well executed i just think we're a different kind of band you know i remember when we were in the studio like a bunch of producers would be like man if you if you would just wear a little makeup or like do this and i don't know maybe maybe it's because we came from like the the hardcore like kind of like diy world not saying my chem didn't like, again like i have like i think what they did was was genius but i think maybe like for us we always felt like you know that that level of like showmanship like i feel like thursday who are like you know basically brothers with my cam they both came up together um i feel like thursday kind of feel like that too like jeff the singer from thursday could never do what gerard does um because they're just a different kind of band and i feel like you know we just always felt like we were you know not that kind of like showy band that would wear the coordinating outfits and and do the whole thing. Um, But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe things would have been different if we would have done that. But at the same time, I I don't think there's a world that we would have done that because that's just not who we were. You know, I was going to say you could have dressed up like Um, ghosts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah. again, that's like, you know, we, we talked about influences a little bit. That's not what Shai Hulud does. That's not what Thursday does. Mm. You know, that's not, you know, right. Um, it, do, it doesn't really work. And I think um, I, I think that to a certain extent, too, that, you know, the music really should be able to speak for itself in, in a situation like that. And I'm not bashing bands like My Chemical Romance by any means. But like, I feel like with with, you know, what to do with your debt, what to do when your debt is just very um um i I don't know like beyond just saying that like it speaks for itself musically and lyrically and um speaking of lyrics too you know this is something that i that i run into on 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 these podcasts is that i feel like there's not a lot of the population that really pays attention to lyrics and concepts and so like were you were you worried at all that like 
maybe what you know what you what you were throwing down was going to go over people's heads you know to an sure. extent like like people are just like i just want to listen to music that i can mosh to or music that you know just totally. makes me feel good Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I wrote these songs on a hunch, and I think most of the songs I wrote on a hunch that um, it's almost like, you know, I don't know, throwing like a handful of coins at a refrigerator, and some <laughs> of them are magnets. Right. You know what I mean? You know sure. the one that are ma- our magnets are going to stick, and that connection is going to be hard, but you also acknowledge that most of them are not magnetized and will just spray off. Right. So, like, I feel like I had a hunch um, writing, you know, when I write normal songs and i had a hunch writing these songs that like yes it is it is tough uh to get into and also we're not the kind of band that's necessarily as immediate as my chem but i also had the hunch that the people who did get it like were going to uh really connect to it you know sure um and uh and again that's not to say what my chem has is bad because i think my chem basically has like a handful of magnetized coins <laughs> you know what i mean like sure. they have they have the stuff to to hook people from the beginning and the hooks but then they also have the depth and you know what i mean but um but yeah so so that was my hunch and um i think i was aware of that uh from from the beginning and so it's okay that uh you know whatever if it's not someone's cup of tea or someone doesn't quote unquote get it like that it doesn't mean, you know, I'm wrong or they're wrong. It just means that, uh, you know, people connect with different things. And, and also sometimes people connect with things based on where they are in their lives, too. Um, sure. I think I'm a lot more understanding of that now uh, than maybe I was when I was younger. Um, you know, there's no there's no correct art. You know, it's it's like sometimes it connects with people. Sometimes it doesn't. That doesn't make it, you know, less true or more true. Sure. Um, so something that was really interesting to me, um, when you did the lead singer syndrome podcast was talking about what would become smile for them Mm. and the band kind of, I mean, going, like I said, coming into it after the fact of the band being gone and going back and, you know, listening to everything after it had already been released and so forth. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Refused a little bit where, you know, I got into Shape of Punk to Come and I was like, holy fuck, this band's great. Oh, fuck, they broke up. And then you go back and listen to, like, Fan the Flames of Discontent and so forth and you kind of see the band and you see the evolution after the fact. And what was interesting to me when you were talking to to, uh, Shane about this record is it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite bands in a situation that happened to them which was uh, Finch. So obviously everyone loved What It Is to Burn. Um, However, my favorite record is Say Hello to Sunshine. And having had Nate on this podcast a while ago, he had made the comment about, you know, because at the time when that record came out, press wasn't really what it is now. There weren't podcasts. You know, it was kind of hard to find information about this record that seemingly didn't do well. The band either did or didn't like it. I don't know, because like I said, there wasn't much press behind it. And so what's interesting to kind of be able to do now is kind of retroactively talk about these things where... There's not much known about it. And what was interesting to me is it seemed like you guys were poised for just monster success, almost in the way that Taking Back Sunday was from Louder Now mm-hmm. when they did you know, their first major label uh, record, which I think, fittingly enough, was actually on Warner Brothers as well. Um, and what was really telling, and if I hadn't already talked to Nate and heard the same kind of a story, I probably wouldn't have believed it as much because it's like, well, why the fuck would they do that? But basically you said, like, and you just said a little bit ago, you had 60-some-odd songs, and if I remember in Shane's conversation with you, you were talking about how the label wanted a certain sound from you, and they kept saying, like, well, we don't hear the song, or we like this, go down more in that direction, mm-hmm. and just kind of, I guess, fucked with you guys to where you you didn't even know what you wanted anymore, it sounded like. What? Yeah. 
you know, you basically said you had the what would have been the original version of that record, totally. but you didn't necessarily touch on that a whole lot. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about that. At this mm-hmm. point, is is that technically still Warner Brothers property? Like, do they own that, or because it's not what they released, do can you ever put that out and put out technically the record that you wanted to initially? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, I think I think they do not own the stuff anymore that we recorded around that time that was not actually released so sunset clause would be up at this point on on them owning that or or something yeah i think when we (laughs) left warner brothers um there was like some kind of agreement like hey we're gonna go our separate ways uh you own what you own but you can't claim to own other stuff that we did around that time that w- you guys never officially released. Um, yeah, I think. Just try it and find out. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, not like, oh, if we put out that record, like, <laughs> we'll be huge. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that at all. You know what I mean? Um, I just think, I just think talking about that was very eye-opening, like how different the process was on a major label. And also, you know, hearing hearing you kind of recount what I said, it sounds so much more nefarious than it actually happened. You know, like I don't want someone listening to this to think when you major label, you have these like board meetings with people in suits sitting around. You know, it's it's all like young people that are cool that work at these labels that you have connections with. I just think like uh, the general public is just unaware of the fact that with new with developing bands, major labels really have no idea what the fuck they're doing. What they do really no. <laughs> well is take something that's already big and just, you know, they just want a cut of something that's already happening. But if it's not really happening yet, they don't know what to do. That's why they that's why they they take so long to get these records done because they literally don't really know what to do aside from just like, like when I talk about people just being concerned about their jobs, you know, there's so many people that work at major labels that if people from this department aren't chiming in and this department aren't chiming in, it's just like any other company. Like they don't want their bosses to think like they're not giving input. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's just a bunch of noise, you know? Um, so, so kids, I would encourage everyone don't sign to a major label until you've sold, I don't know, 3 million records. Then you can go ahead. Well, and that, you know that kind of leads to my next question is you know with the way that the music industry has changed since then Mm -hmm. you know i mean now really a major label doesn't make sense i mean i guess in a certain in a certain perspective it does i guess if you're like a pop artist or you know somebody that's you know that they have a guaranteed hit with uh but i feel like now nowadays major labels aren't willing to take as much of a risk as maybe they were you know when this style of music was starting to come to prominence you know and uh I know, like, as a band, you guys haven't really, you know, experienced that. I mean, you guys have come back for, you know, select shows and, and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, like, how, how has your perspective changed on that nowadays where, you know, if John decided tomorrow he was going to become a mumble rapper, you know, he could go on, he could go on and release an entire album from his, from his MacBook and, and, and get the kind of support he needs. You know, do you, do you feel like major labels or labels at all are even necessary at this point? Um, that's a really good question. I have so many friends 10 years ago that said major labels will be out of business in two years. Um, as that's kind of what everybody thought. And it looked like it was going that way. And I think now with Spotify, 
they have found a way to keep making money off of their catalog, uh, their back catalog. And I think ultimately that and the fact that people still listen to terrestrial radio and um, that they can still pay to have their artists on the radio, I think will ultimately like keep them in power. Um, but I think my perspective has changed since we were on a major label and um, kind of like this goes to what we were talking about before about people discovering music and forming connections with it like like you said that you found out about what to do when you were dead when your wife played it for you and you know i think as an artist when i was in a band i would get so discouraged when i wouldn't see the immediate feedback when we'd be like oh we came out with what to do when you're dead a month ago why isn't the show sold out right because like <laughs> i i had a suspicion this would connect to people but you know what music and songs sometimes it takes years and years and years for it to really develop like a deep connection with a human being because humans are so fucking complex and also it takes especially now with so much music on the internet can you imagine how long it takes for someone to discover a song but when someone discovers a song, that connection they could make with that song and that artist could last a lifetime. And and I just think I have more of an understanding now that that it takes time. And if you want to, you know, start a band um, to make a quick buck, uh, it's probably not going to happen. But at the same time, I think that people still connect with music just as much now as they did then. And that has nothing to do with major labels. It has nothing to do with anything. Um, but yeah, I think I think unfortunately, major labels are still the gatekeeper in a lot of different corners of, of this business. Sure. I mean, even a lot of the upstarts that I'm talking about, you know, they event you know they might have upstarted they might have put their first record out on their computer but they eventually ended up signing with a major <laughs> you know uh at right. some point and also to clarify when i was not saying major labels are bad uh the thing that was interesting to me when you know talking and listening to your conversation with Shane and you going through that whole album cycle basically in the recording process when talking with Nate from Finch he basically told me the label when they heard it they went through three different producers and mm-hmm. when they went to turn it in they were like yeah we're shelving this <laughs> and yeah. thankfully they didn't but i mean it's like that's that's the unfortunate side of this thing and sometimes why i get a little bit wrapped up in, in talking about the and i know this isn't a word but i make it one the commoditization yeah it's not a word um but basically of of your music and they're looking at it going will this outsell the last thing you did will this make us our and you know the recording budgets were way bigger back then than they are now but you know they, they look at the dollars and cents and look at it not from an artistic standpoint and it's interesting to see how some of these things years later, you know, when Say Hello to Sunshine came out, people were like pissed because it wasn't what it is to burn point two. Same with like when Refuse put out Electra, it wasn't Shape of Punk to come 15 years later, so they were pissed. And yep. to me, what was interesting is, you know, you're you're following up a record that, you know, you got a lot of eyes on you. And by all accounts, it seemed like you guys, by the time it came out, weren't really stoked on it because you're... you're <sighs> you guys seemed like it had kind of been kind of beaten out of you a little bit. And it was just kind of a, a, a drag to get to the finish line of getting something out that everyone could agree upon. Mm-hmm. And then fans didn't seemingly like it at the time. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder now, because, you know, a lot of fans, like you were just saying, it takes some time for music to catch on. Are you finding that people are now coming to you 13 years later going, you know what, man, Smile for Them actually <laughs> is a really fucking good record. And I just didn't give it a fair shake when it first came up. But man, I love the whole record. I really love these songs. Is it interesting? Does it have that second life that it just, you know, you never expected it to have in the in when you put it out? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely we've heard over the years um, that people are like, man, that, that, uh, like, 
actually what's funny is after I did that, uh, the podcast with Shane, I got a ton of messages like shit. Like, I feel like, uh, you guys were just like trashing that record, but I actually really liked it. And yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I, I think, uh, maybe it wasn't given uh, a fair shake when it came out, but, um, uh yeah i mean i don't i don't blame any anyone else for that and um and uh yeah i mean it i will be honest it doesn't it doesn't have the same afterlife as what to do when you're dead with like that album i think definitely has connected with people more over the years that we hear about um than smile for them um but you know i don't laugh at someone if, if they said that they they like smile for them i'm like cool you know you're you definitely like went out and listened to it then because that you know the the reception of that record was not good when it came out um do you think too that it, it had something to do with the fact that like people were i don't know like did you feel like it had something to do with the fact that like labels were pushing you know at that time to take these bands that were doing something new something exciting and trying to get them to more or less conform with what they felt like worked um i think what was going on was a the same thing that happened post nirvana in the grunge world where people in major labels were like grunge what's grunge oh this is a, a band from seattle's that wears flannel shirts let's let's have them put out a record and maybe it'll make money because they were they were looking for the next nirvana and yeah. the same thing was happening with us when we were a band like i remember when we went to record some demos at the studio we always went to in new york um and my chem were there the day before this is uh before they've been signed to warner brothers and i remember there being like three cars parked outside of the studio of like older dudes who were from labels like labels were sniffing out the scene hard and that record smile for them was in the phase when all these major labels started scooping up basically like every band from that scene um now looking back on it i realized what they were doing was they were just um they were just hoping that one out of every you know 50 that they would sign would be like my chemical romance you know they weren't really paying attention to like how does this band fit in the scene what works about the band what doesn't um because to them it's all you know they're like if one of the 50 bands winds up being as big as my chem, we will have made back all the money that we paid the 49 other artists. Like we'll, we'll have made back the money that we paid them their advance for. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and I think, I think at the time it was, this whole scene was uh, flooded with a lot of bands, um, you know, that were influenced by the same bands that we were. And it was just a lot of the same stuff. And then I think kids were becoming aware that all these bands, their new records sounded like very much more produced than the last couple and now they're like you know it's just nothing was as cool as it was when we were all on these cool like indie labels that was from the scene and kids are very kids sniff that out and and they can tell when a band you know has major label backing instead of like indie label backing and, and i think it was happening to a lot of bands and i think i think people who grew up in that scene were just kind of you know getting bummed out by it and we're looking for something a little bit fresher definitely so let's uh let's move to to the present at this point um you guys you know did a reunion show uh what was it 20 2015 2012? Yeah, 2015, we did a couple of shows. What was the catalyst? I mean, obviously, it's a 15-year anniversary tour. I mean, I get that. But what really was the catalyst for, for getting the band back together to celebrate this record now? Because, um, I mean, you're, you're typically you see these, it's a, the 10-year, the 20-year, the 25th. Yeah. You know, 15, you, you know, you're kind of branching out into some uncharted territory there with a 15-year <laughs> anniversary. Yeah, uh, it, it's funny. I think, so Dan Sancho, who is... Um, 
the head dude at Equal Vision. Um, it was the same guy who was at Equal Vision when we were recording What to Do When You're Dead. You know, the same guy that's just always been like a fan of us. And um, he was doing, they did um, a Saves the Day 20 year uh, uh, reprint of um, Through Being Cool. And Saves the Day played some shows and they played in LA. And Chris texted me, the singer, and was like, hey, do you want to come out? And I was like, yes. So I came out to the show and Dan was there. Um, and so I caught up with him and he was like, you know, would you, what do you think about, um, playing some shows? And I was like, I was like, man, it's been forever. I just, I really don't know. I was like, I would do it if, you know, like people would come to the shows, but I think it's been so long at this point. And like, you know, I don't, I, I feel like unless I knew that people would be stoked, I would feel so presumptuous just to be like, I'm sure people still care. Like, I, like that's not in my personality, but Dan was like, I really think people would be into it and um and so he was like you know we could do like a, a like a reissue of the record and and on that record we could maybe do some like unreleased songs or if there's something that you you know wanted to put out we could we could uh figure out how to make that happen so i called i called our booking agent and was like hey uh do you think like if we played shows, would anyone come? And uh, so he's like, I don't know, let me talk to a couple of promoters. And then like a month later, he came back with promoters offers from around the country. And like, it was pretty fucking cool to see, you know, cause the promoters know in their markets, you know, like they kind of have their finger on the pulse of like what shows their constituents would come out to. Um, so it was cool. That was the moment when I was like, oh fuck. So I guess, I guess this could be something that we could do. And, you know, if, if, if our fans, after all this time, if the record still means something to them, um, then like, uh, we'd be happy to celebrate it. You know, I just, I guess, I guess I'm honestly, I'm probably way, I'm not, not like I'm hard on myself, but I, I, I'm just not the type of person to assume, you know, that like people would, would still be, you know, listening after all these years and, and want to come out to the shows. Um, so it, I guess it took a little bit of convincing, um, but yeah, I mean, to go back and, and, and uh, play the record after all this time is, is cool. And I think, uh, you know, think, things just ended kind of weird, weird for us, especially, you know, our whole experience with Warner Brothers afterwards. And it just feels like we never really had a time to like celebrate that record because things kind of accelerated so fast afterwards and everything was just shit on and the whole scene was shit on. And, and, um, you know, we kind of broke up in a haste and like, we've never really had a time to be like, all right, let's just fucking like do something normal and nice for our fans and just <laughs> celebrate it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I would be remiss to ask, you know, has there been any type of, and I know you guys haven't actually officially, you know, embarked on, on any of these uh tour dates yeah. but but i guess i'd be remiss to ask if there's ever been any kind of like spark to revitalize the project you know um to to do something to do something new to do something different and like that's such a loaded question i understand that like yeah and i'm not trying to like get something out of you you know what i mean like or that but like yeah. has there ever been a thought to like you know we could we could probably in the modern music business like put something out and it might actually be big for the fans um that's a very interesting question i think if you had asked me that six months ago yeah I probably would have said like a hard no yeah um <laughs> but um it's just interesting it's interesting to think about and um i definitely think i was a little bit again unaware of um i guess the people that would uh, i mean i don't know how to put it that would be like stoked on us and um it is kind of interesting to think about you know like 
don't want to go into the whole thing again, uh, just for the sake of not repeating. Um, but like, you know, the whole songwriting process for Smile for Them, which is the last thing we really did, was like not really fulfilling and not really, you know, I think what we started off doing. So it is it is kind of intriguing to think of, um, you know, something else. But, you know, I don't I don't I don't, um, you know, no, no plans for that. But I just think it's maybe not the same hard no that it would have been. Right, yeah. So there, it's not an official announcement, but it's like a huh, yeah, yeah, I get you. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think Armor for Sleep would sound like now? You know, all these years after the fact. Man, I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, the stuff that that we did back then, like we we weren't trying to sound like something, so it would it would pretty much sound like like that <laughs> you know what I, mean? like, I don't think we'd come back and be like rap metal now that our influences have changed and and like i said before like the way i just typically write songs you know like people have come up to me like oh like so do you always like just try and have all your songs sound like armor for sleep and it's like no that's literally just how it comes out like that's <laughs> so that's as me. much as i would try for it to be something else that it's just literally going to sound like that um which again talking about the whole like i think you know i have an understanding now that like I am okay with that, you know, and I'm not like a 23 year old asshole. That's like, how do we take what we're doing and expand the fan base? Like I'm under no, like I would be under no illusions of that. And in trying to like, you know, reach beyond our, our world, I think, you know, if we did anything, it would just be more of a, of an understanding of kind of like what uh, we're, we're good at, you know, 15 years later after what to do when you were dead, it's been out. What does the album mean to you now versus what it maybe meant when you were writing it and it first came out? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna derive like meaning from the lyrics of it because obviously like, you know, that was me writing it. I think it's, it's more meaningful to me because, um, like I never really like kept, kept a journal, uh, but I imagine if someone kept a diary and opened it up to like, you know, 15 years ago, it's, it's kind of a trip. And the fact that I have that record, like, um, uh, it, it almost, it's like a living journal to me. Cause when I listen to it, uh, I go right back to like being in, in machine studio. Like I remember I turned, uh, 21, uh, cause we recorded it in the summer and my birthday's in July when we were recording that album. And, you know, just thinking back to like what my life was like at that time and what we were all going through, it's just like, uh, I'll just, I'll never forget that period of my life now because it's kind of like etched, etched into, you know, uh, well, I guess my computer now for whenever I want to listen to it. Um, so it, that's, that's how it's most meaningful to me because, you know, no matter how old I get that I'm still the same age when I listen to that damn record. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so something I actually forgot to ask you in the moment of talking about the lyrics for the record, and I kind of wanted to get to it before I completely forgot it again and then goes, holy shit, I forgot to ask that. Sure. You know, you had talked about uh, writing the first couple of songs for the record, and, you know, as the story has been said, that basically you, you know, tried to find other other perspectives to write about, and then saw a book, um, and then basically <laughs> that kind of, you took that as a sign. I don't yeah. think I've really ever heard you talk about if you are, I don't want to say spiritual, but if you believe in things of that sort, where things will kind of, like life will kind of give you the signs and point you in a direction where you are supposed to be. Because I thought that was really interesting, especially given the, the theme of kind of everything of that record. Yeah, totally. That's a good question. Um, so kind of to answer your question, like, no. Uh, I'm like super uh, kind of like, 
science oriented like my dad um he went to college for theoretical physics so like you know he just always raised me um like talking about like gravity and space time and Mm. so like religion and like spiritual things uh in terms of like heaven and like you know you're going to heaven or hell like i never believed in um spiritual things like that and i i you know in terms of superstitious things i'm always the first person to say like there's got to be a practical reason for that um but that's just in my you know i think that's just personally how how i think about the world but that's not necessarily the most interesting way to uh think about things and um you know, I think what's more interesting to me is why people are drawn to have the beliefs that they do have. And I think there's something it's so telling about, you know, human beings and the human experience, like all of the superstitious things that we each have in our lives um, and, you know, the religious beliefs. Uh, I'm so intrigued by that because it says so much about, you know, about us as, as you know, a species and and what puts our minds at ease. Um, so yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't think I believe, uh, believe in, in, I guess there's a really, um, people say this a million times. So I don't, I don't believe in religion that I'm sure, um, is like the, the widely accepted forms of religion, you know, in terms of like spiritualism aside from that, I mean, my answer is, <laughs> is probably like either a no or like a no with like a tiny question mark. <laughs> somewhere down the page you know what i mean that's a yeah. very small question mark well hi you just lost half your fan base no i'm kidding um, i'm sorry guys no it's fine you, you weren't on solid state so you're good you're not on solid state records <laughs> yeah. you're okay you weren't on tooth and nail it's okay uh but uh <laughs> you know one, one thing that you know like like get it, getting together and playing this record uh beginning to end you know like how how is that going to feel for you as far as far as presentation goes to be revisiting you know kind of these uh these ideas and concepts i mean you you've lived an entire life since then you know um no it's great i mean i i literally like it makes me really excited to think about and again the first thing i just wanted to make sure that people actually were would be excited about it you know and then once that was solved and and so uh we put up tickets for these shows and um i think the show in new york sold out in like five minutes and la sold out in you know like a half an hour or something and we when we were an actual band we you know i don't think we ever you know played at places that were that big um so like i don't i don't care about that in terms of the numbers but what what feels really good is just knowing that we'll be up there playing these songs that actually mean something enough to people to have like paid tickets for and want to be like singing back to me um i mean that means the absolute world to me and there's nowhere else i'd rather be than than that because i think you know that was kind of like my hunch all along and and i can't think of you know something more gratifying than doing something some you know than creating some kind of weird song that you know not everyone's gonna like but you just hope upon hopes that it could mean something to someone and and then you know 15 years later to be able to play for a whatever like a thousand people in philadelphia that are gonna you know be there you know wanting to sing along to a record that came out 15 years ago like that to me uh is you know, mind blowing and the the coolest thing ever. So I have literally nothing 
I can't even think of any kind of negative thing about that, you know? Um, Maybe if I was, whatever, a 22-year-old, I'd be like, oh, but uh, I won't be up there playing, like, a new song that I wrote. But, like, I think just having a realistic understanding of how how cool that is, um, I think, is not lost on me or any of us. And, um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Makes me feel old. (laughs) 15 years later, man. Like, when I heard this record, it was, like, four kids ago. Man, that's (laughs) insane. (laughs) That's awesome. What are you looking forward to being able to do as far as the presentation in a live setting for this record are you looking forward to doing? That's a good question. Um, I mean, one thing, you know, we're playing some shows like we're playing in Philadelphia and New Jersey and New York. Um, and I know there are people going to multiple shows, so I don't want to do the same thing for people that could be coming to multiple shows. However, you know, like uh, we're presuming we're going to play all of what to do when you were dead. Um, also, psych we're actually playing smile for you in its entirety oh my god right that would hit we're yeah right um (laughs) surprise yeah yeah um but like i think i think i think it might piss people off if we don't do it in order but i don't i don't think we like have to necessarily do it in order every night so we just we just might switch up what we do and um yeah we're not gonna have like projectors and fog machines on stage though you know i forget who it was we talked to someone about doing a tour like this and they're like yeah i really hope you know because the oh it was uh dude from eve six uh john the guitar player from eve six and you know their big hit is like the first or second song and he goes i hope people don't leave <laughs> right yeah exactly i mean the first song on the record is car underwater and like right. in a live setting i know that always does the best so it would be kind of lame i mean that's why every band saves their best song for last because they want to they want everyone to be there and you know you, you kind of like want to build up the anticipation so i i've definitely thought about that um but i also think that people sometimes really want to hear the whole record in order and also i think yeah i think some Sometimes people are like, oh, we just want to hear the record in order. But if like like for us, the Carnival Water was a bigger song. It's the first song. Sometimes people <laughs> say that. But then as a performer on stage, you're like, well, everybody said that's what they wanted. But actually, the show may have been better if we didn't give it to them. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like sometimes like you feel like, you know, better than them. But I do, I do, I have warmed up to kind of like doing the album in whole, in order, more as like what is to be like expected. And I'm down with that too. I just, you know, I want to do something that's interesting. Um, Well, um, I would typically have you plug the dates, uh, but unfortunately with the situation we're in when we're recording this, um, I've been seeing shows postponed further than your tour dates. So um, totally. Let's uh let's go ahead and, and tentatively go ahead and have you record uh where the you know where you can buy the tickets for the show and mm-hmm. and, and act like everything's gonna you know be cleaned up uh in time for this to come out sure. uh but full transparency we we all don't know what's gonna happen from uh yeah. here going forward so uh, if uh you know these shows get postponed well obviously when we do the intros and so forth we will let you know we'll probably cut this part out <laughs> sure well you can probably you can probably leave this part because I think by the time this goes on, there will have been made uh, an announcement anyway. So I'll just, when I record it, I'll just say as of today on March 17th, you know, here are when the shows are. But, you know, 
check out our website or whatever. Well, on a uh, more positive note, where can uh, people find you and the band online? And uh, sure. I mean, I, we, we don't know what, what you have going on for the rest of this year. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as of right now, um, which is uh, March 17th, 2020 um we have our um our 15 year anniversary shows for what you're doing you're dead which starts in mid-june and um they're all spaced out through september and you can go to armorforsleep.com for all the tickets and we're on instagram um at um at armor for sleep and i am on instagram at ben jorg uh, b-e-n-j-o-r-g and um by the time this podcast airs uh we'll see where the world is but there is definitely a possibility based on you know what the cdc is going to recommend for gatherings that um a lot of the shows that are currently scheduled for the summer are going to have to move to later so um you know it's unfortunate it's unfortunate for us it's unfortunate for everyone but life is kind of unfortunate for everyone right now and so we just you know we have to follow whatever guidelines um are given and our booking agent is trying to stay ahead of it and trying to you know be as fair as possible to our fans in terms of like not jerking them around and having one show be rescheduled and having to reschedule it again so um we we just got to figure out i mean this thing is moving so freaking fast that just everyone is like you know has no idea what to do um so it, it is unfortunate timing but that's that's the world and and uh we're all figuring it out together you know so say i know i'm looking forward to trying to uh go to the chicago date uh since that's on a friday uh with my cool. wife and going to see this so hopefully uh hopefully it doesn't yeah. tell it before we can buy tickets <laughs> yeah for sure and if it's if it's not when it's supposed to be it'll be you know not that much later um you know we just obviously we we just want to make sure people are going to be able to go you know yeah absolutely well thank you so much for taking the time and uh yeah. awesome and, man uh, thank you yeah thanks so much yeah thank you guys very much appreciate it definitely so that was our conversation with Ben Jorgensen, again, guitarist, singer of Armor for Sleep. Had a lot of fun with that one. Uh, you may not expect either of us to be Armor for Sleep fans. And, you know, as we kind of said right out the gate, which I kind of feel like a dickhead for saying this, but... Um I, I don't really ever see the point of sucking someone's dick for no reason and being like, oh man, I loved your band for like ever since like the first EP ever came out. No, like I think there's some something, and you know, it was kind of the fun thing in talking with him about talking about how some of the fans of his band had come out after the fact of them being broken up or only found them on that one record after it had been out. And I'm one of those, like, and I, you know, I constantly thank my wife for you know, playing that record and me just as a guitar player and someone who loves good production and just good songwriting, like it's a really solid record. It sounds great. It still holds up. Um, there are definitely a lot of records I used to listen to from back then that I'm like, yeah, this didn't, uh, this didn't age very well. Um, but I can definitely say that, uh, what to do when you're dead sounds great. It sounds like it came out relatively recently. Well, yeah. And it's definitely like in my wheelhouse and anybody that knows like my history with music, it's very much like, totally in line with the kind of bands that i liked and and always talk about so i mean in that regard you know uh you'd be foolish not to check out you know what to do when you're dead and you know i know it's 15 years old but you know we're old it's fine yeah no armor for sleep though they're kind of interesting and you know and i kind of made a couple of allusions to it uh you know basically way back to our conversation with nate from finch and just kind of what finch went through with you know putting out a record that everyone loved and then kind of having everyone be like yo what happened i don't like this and it's interesting when you're able to kind of go back 
10, 15 years after a record came out that quote unquote disappointed you. And then through your more adult brain or, you know, and I don't know how much of it really is the fact that you're just not around your peers at the time that would be like, this record sucks. And you're like, oh yeah, totally. I hate this. When really you, you, you do like it. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was me whenever I was younger, for sure. You know, like, oh, you know, you only had time for so many bands back then because you only had so much money. Which we talked about in the interview, but, um, you know, it's it's definitely one of those situations where, um, I don't know, man. Like, it, it, it it's, I definitely used to say some pretty horrible things about bands that were fantastic. Um, just look at my Pantera stuff. Uh, but, you know, like, in a case like Armor for Sleep, I definitely felt bad. I definitely feel bad um, for some of the things I said about some bands back in the day. <laughs> just because I, you know, I picked one band over the other. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting though. Like I, you know, we've talked quite a bit about, about this, you know, we we talked to Dennis and refused a couple of weeks ago, basically about, you know, just kind of being ahead of, ahead of the, their fans really. Um, you know, like, you know, we talked about on that episode, like I talked with Dennis, you know, fan of flames came out and everyone loved that, but then shape of punk came out and people were like, this isn't fan of the flames. Then electric came out. Well, this isn't shape of punk to come shape of punk comes the end all be all record. And then, you know, now that warm music's out, people are like, well, I guess Electra's not that bad. And it's just like, man, like what the fuck? Like people just can't ever seem to keep up with things. And, you know, I know, again, going through all the discographies you do for discography discussion, I'm sure you come across this all the time. I think, you know, one of the best examples of this was the Limp Biscuit stuff. Like when you guys did Limp Biscuit's discography, there was a lot of it that you're like, I never gave this a, sh- a fair shake because I thought it just sucked because I just, at the time, it wasn't this one record I really liked and I moved on to other shit. But like now in retrospect, listening to these things as a whole, I actually think these are pretty solid records. And it's one of those things where I think that happens more than we want to admit because there's nostalgia attached to these things. And I don't know, like, you know, you, you I think a phrase you kind of constantly say as of late, and I'll just update it for this year is like, you know, I'm looking at this with my 2020 brain, not my, you know, 2005 brain. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, Limp Bizkit's a great example because, you know, I went into that episode expecting to hate it. I was, I was ready, dude. I had my notepad out. I was like, dude, I'm going to tear every single one of these records a new one. And as I went through it, I was just like, this slaps. This slaps. This is cool. This is cool. This is different. This is not what I was expecting at all from this band. <clears throat> and a lot of the assumptions I had about the band back at that time were mainly shaped by society and not by the records themselves. And I think, you know, with this Armor for Sleep record, I think that that really hits home in the sense that, like, I was into Hope's Fall and Shy Halud and all that stuff that year. Why would I not have dug an Armor for Sleep record? Th- th- there's no reason for it. It's it's right up my alley. I think I was in, an, in a slightly different spot. I mean, being from the East Coast, like, there's a lot of the East Coast bands. You know, I actually had someone ask me this the other day. They're like, you know, you talk a lot on the podcast about being, like, into these bands. And, like, if you really do the math of your age, because, you know, they say, like, you know, you constantly say that like, you're, you know, in your mid-30s. Some of these records came out when you were, like, seven seven or eight or nine or ten right and and i'm like yeah but like the thing that i think people sometimes forget too is people had siblings and so you're kind of and mtv was really popular so i mean like my parents were ones that just left mtv on all fucking day right if we were home typically mtv was the station that was on so i'm getting anything from yo mtv raps to headbangers ball which would be on later at the night but i'm getting such a wide array of music 
broadcast to me every single day in addition to whatever my friends brothers and sisters and so forth are playing plus whatever is the regional thing which at that point you know being on the east coast like when boys to men kind of broke philly was only a couple like an hour or so away so like when boys to men started breaking it's kind of happening there on the east coast like right where i'm at so there's a lot of that that it's like when i say i liked some of these bands and people are like, but you weren't that old to really be into it. I, I think people kind of don't understand what it was like to kind of get into music at a young age back then. I think we were kind of more fans of of music as a whole at a younger age because it was it was so we were so inundated with it between radio, MTV, and I just can't stress how big MTV was. Um, I know it sounds weird in 2020 to be like, yo, MTV used to play music videos all fucking day of all different kinds. Like they used to have dedicated shows to a specific genre of music but it's one of those things like and you know when ben was actually talking about uh truth about heaven video being pushed on mtv2 i remember that um as it was right toward the end of me moving out of my parents house and and living on my own but i would go over to my parents house to do laundry and i would still watch mtvx when that was still a thing for a hot minute um much music was starting to play videos and starting to get a lot of bands coming through in studio and it's like i said it's just kind of interesting to think back at this time of sort of being broke but starting to see the shift of things going to be more online versus being on tv well i mean back then like at least for me it was more like how it made me feel i wasn't going back and cross-referencing what year it came out you know because they they would play a lot of a lot of stuff that might have been you know 10 years old or five years old at that point and um you know so yeah i mean a lot of the times I've, I've gotten that too where it's like your age doesn't match up with your fandom but like it's just like i don't know man it came on mtv2 and it was late at night and i liked it <laughs> Absolutely. like that's the beginning and the end of the conversation you know i'm interested to see what armor for sleep looks like for fans in 2020 um, I hate to keep bringing up the Nate from Finch angle, but I think it's one that really kind of works where the band went away on on the, <laughs> I can't say the strength of a record, but the the lack of strength, the weakness of a record doing well on a major label and yeah. fans just not being into it and then basically going away. That's, I mean, that part of the story very much parallels Finch. And what's interesting to me is Finch came back, obviously did their anniversary tour of what it is to burn, put it out on vinyl, like all this kind of stuff and had a bit of a resurgence, put out uh, two records and an EP and went away again. And, it seems like fans still want Finch to exist. Um, in what capacity, I don't know. Because um, it definitely seems like, for as many people say as they like Say Hello to Sunshine, I feel like when they play anything other than what it is to burn songs live, fans basically just go get beers or go to the bathroom or on their phones. But Which is a travesty. It absolutely is. Um, so I'm hoping that if Armor, if this tour does as well as it seems like it's going to do, uh, dates are sold out as long as everything works out and it's allowed to keep happening, you know, amongst amidst this coronavirus thing. I'm hoping that there is a demand for Armor for Sleep and they can do, the sounds shitty to say, I hope they can do a proper follow-up that is more in the vein of what to do when you're dead, not as far as a sound or anything, but like Ben said, there were no people looking over what they were doing to nitpick it, and I yeah. hope that they're able to create something with that kind of freedom, because I think, and it obviously shows from the one time that they've been able to do it, when they've been given the freedom to create as they want to, they're capable of just amazing things, and... 
we've seen what happens when that's not the case, which is smile for you. And I'm not saying it's a bad record, but it's marred with too many hands in the jar. Um, so I'm hoping if they do decide to come back, I hope they're able to kind of do things on their own with no label input, no management input, just be who they want to be and put out the record they want to put out because I think that's going to be what generates the best results. So as a fan of Armor for Sleep in 2020, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, like I said in the interview, it's not like they have to have a major label behind it. They they sold out uh, of records so quickly that there's a built-in audience. They'll be fine. I agree. Um, all of that said, like <laughs> like we already said in the intro and as you've already heard, this is a long enough interview. This is a long enough episode. So uh, kind of get right to it. End this episode on a high note. Um, so if you would like to keep up with Armor for Sleep, find them on Facebook at Armor for Sleep, Instagram at Armor for Sleep, and Twitter at Armor for Sleep and J. If you would like to keep up with Ben, you can find him at Ben Jorg on Instagram and Twitter. Go to armorforsleep.com, uh, buy tickets it's buy your vinyl all that kind of stuff um very much like i said hoping that the tour dates stay the way they are hopefully we'll go to chicago and check out this show i uh, would love to see this record performed in its entirety there's a lot of cool things as a guitar player learning this record over the last year or so um that i've really come to appreciate and would love to see live and just kind of see how they pull it off um if you would like to keep up with our show sponsors, rockabilia.com, head over there, support them for supporting us. Uh, like I said, if you're a new first-time user, uh, you get 10% off your total purchase uh, by putting in your email address and all that kind of stuff. They do have Armor for Sleep merch. They have Refuse merch. Pretty much any band that's been on this show, they have it. They have over 500,000 items for sale, spanning bands, spanning movies, spanning pop culture. If you are into it, it's probably over there. Go over to rockabilia.com and check everything out. Uh, Podcorn, thanks again for supporting this podcast. We are doing a bunch of shit. We're having a website built. We're having graphics being built, which you probably have already seen at this point. We're doing a lot of things. Uh, Bean Bastard, go to TheBeanBastard.com, get you some delicious coffee. Facebook, Instagram, at TheBeanBastard, on Point Pomade. Use the code BSP15, get you some beard and hair care products. Keep your hair and beard looking on point. Support all of our sponsors for supporting us. Uh, we can't do this show without them. Uh, a lot of the things we're trying to do moving forward require these kinds of things. So support them for supporting us. And Dan will tell you where he can be found and where you can support him. Well, you can find little old me over at DiscussMetal.com, talk Talking trash about your favorite band or maybe saying they're the best band ever. It just depends, I guess, on what your favorite band is. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Discuss Metal Dan. You can send me an email at show at gmail.com. And uh, you can even reach out to me on Facebook under Daniel Terry. I'm not hard to find. I'll probably accept your friend request unless you're like some kind of weirdo. Uh, but uh, that remains to be seen. So go ahead and try it anyway. And if you would like to keep up with this podcast, you can find us simply enough at Bruce Speak Pod, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check us out on YouTube. We have videos where they're applicable. Uh, if you would like to support us monetarily, you can head over to patreon.com slash brewspeakpod. If you would like to support us non-monetarily, leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcatcher app you are using. It is greatly appreciated. And for the Brutally Speaking Podcast, I am John. And I am Dan. And we will talk to you all next time.